I've titled the message, Do You Want to Be Happy? Do you want to be happy? The new year is a great time to reflect and evaluate all aspects of our lives. It is the time where a great many people have looked in the mirror and decided that they don't like what they see, and so they have decided it is time to hit the gym. It is also a time where a great many people have evaluated their own personal finances, including your savings, your retirement, your investments. The holidays are also a time where many people are reminded that their relationships with their relatives are not great. Now, I'm sure none of you have that problem, but people you know might have that problem. And so those people are taking some time to reflect on the choices that they've made in the past and their impact. Now, what is their impact? The impact of these choices, any of these choices. Well, the impact of these choices is ultimately on your level of happiness. That's the reason why you think about these things. You're thinking, well... Does it really make me happy when my back hurts and my knees hurt and I get winded when I'm hiking up one flight of stairs? Well, no, it doesn't make me happy. So therefore, I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to get in shape. Or does it make me happy when when at the end of the month comes and the bills come in and I'm so nervous, I'm like holding my breath to see if there will be enough money to pay the bills? No, that doesn't make me feel good. It makes me unhappy to experience that. Therefore, I'm going to make some adjustments. Or you might be thinking, you know what? This last Christmas was not happy going to visit my certain relatives. So uh, I I don't want to do that next year. So I'm going to adjust my holiday plans. The reason you make any of those plans, the the reason you do any of those things is in accordance with what will make you happy. This is the way we all think. It makes you unhappy to look at your bank account and see zero dollars. So you're going to make some changes. It makes you unhappy to look in the mirror and see the effects of too many donuts and not enough exercise. So you're going to make some changes. It makes you unhappy to see, to be under the thumb of a certain relative. So you're going to make some changes such as next year's travel plans or your current financial arrangement, such as who is paying the rent, whether it is you or your parents. Why do you make any of these changes? Well, because at the end of the day, at a most fundamental level, you and I want to be happy. So, in today's message, I'm speaking to those who want to be happy. But I'm not only speaking to you who want to be happy, I'm also speaking to you who are unhappy, or stressed, or frustrated, or disappointed, and sad. Perhaps you would say, I want to be happy, but I'm not. I want to have a blessed life, but I don't. If that's you, I'm glad you're here. Today's message is for you. Jesus is also glad that you're here. And he and I have collaborated and we put together a little something for you. So, let us begin. We have uh, a few points. I think there are four points. And we have one slide for each of them. So, our first point is Psalm 1, verse 1. The cursed life is the way of the wicked. The cursed life is the way of the wicked. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. You may have noticed that as we read this chapter, the most basic framework for this chapter is this contrast between the blessed man and the wicked man. If you noticed that you have made an astute observation and one that is quite accurate. 
This chapter lifts up both the wicked and the righteous and their way of life for us to consider and to examine and to reflect on. As a side comment, one of the most useful and basic tools to interpret Scripture is not only to consider what it says, but to consider the opposite of what it says. Now, verse 1 does that for us already. It bakes it into it. It evaluates the blessed man by contrasting him with the one who is not blessed. But before we proceed further, we should stop and consider even this word blessed. Blessed is the man. What does blessed mean? Well, in Hebrew, it's the word Esher, 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 something like that. E-S-H-E-R, Esher. And this word Esher means happy. Now, as we proceed in this message, we will see what God means when he says happy. I'm thinking of a meme I saw about um, first-year Greek students when they're preaching. They're like, this word, this word faith is the Greek word phistus, and it means faith. Now, let's move on. This is what we have going on here. The word blessed. Well, what does blessed mean? Well, it means it's the word esher, and it means blessed. It means happy. Great. Glad we got that down. But what it means, it'll be explained. The context will explain what this word means. We will see what God means when he says happy. But this first point is speaking of the blessed man by considering his opposite. In contrast to the blessed man, we have a cursed man, the one who is still under the curse of God. This is the starting point of the wicked. This is the wicked by nature, both by birth and by choice. The starting point of all people is under the curse and wrath of God. The Bible teaches that not only are all people under sin as their starting point, but with that sin, that sin's starting point is also the curse of sin. Have you ever had a bad thing happen and then something else bad happens that makes it even worse? You know, like you are standing on a ladder holding something and the ladder wobbles and you fall and then the thing that you were holding above you falls on top of you. So not only did you fall, but then you got hit while you were down. That's sort of the idea here. Not only are we under sin, but there's the curse of sin on top of us. Now, on this topic of blessings and cursings, God most uh, God extends blessings and cursings most frequently through two methods. So if you're taking notes, this might be something of interest to you to write down. These two methods that God um, distributes blessings and cursings. It's not an overview of, of everything. or it, it is an overview, but it's not an exhaustive uh, survey. I'm just saying, generally speaking, what we see is God extends blessings and cursings through two methods. And those are, number one, his word. And number two, through people. So... God gives blessings, he extends blessings through his word, and he extends cursings through his word. He also gives blessings through people, and he gives curses through people. One of the most famous examples in the Bible is from Numbers chapter 22. We read the story of a prophet named Balaam, who was hired by a guy named Balak, who was the king of Moab, which is an enemy of the children of Israel. This Balak, the king of the Moabites, has hired Balaam to curse the children of Israel. But God intervened and spoke to Balaam, and he said, don't curse these people because they are blessed. 
Then Balak sent a larger entourage with promises of more money. Hey, Balaam, I'll give you more money if you will curse these people. So Balaam ends up following the offer of wealth in exchange for the for cursing Israel. So as he is riding his donkey to go to curse Israel, the angel of the Lord stands in the road and his donkey sees the angel and the donkey turns off the road because the donkey doesn't want to die. This angers Balaam. So he begins hitting the donkey to get back on the road. They proceed again on the path until they come to the path that gets more narrow. It's between two vineyards with stone walls on either side of the, the path. And again, the angel of the Lord stands in the path, blocking the way, and the donkey stops in his tracks and leans against the stone wall, crushing Balaam's foot. This angers Balaam, and he begins to hit the donkey and yell at the donkey again. I'm I'm inserting yelling into the text. It doesn't explicitly say that he yelled at him, but we all know he yelled at him. So this happens then a third time, a yet narrower part of the road. The donkey, the the path is so narrow, there is no other way. It's it's presumably only as wide as the donkey himself. And so um, the angel of the Lord is standing in the way and the donkey lays down on the path rather than continuing. This is all described in Numbers 22, 23, 24. Balaam is so angry that he begins to not only hit his donkey as he has done, but now he is hitting his donkey with a stick. Then the text says the Lord made the donkey speak. So this donkey is now talking and it asked Balaam, what have you done to make you hit me three times? And Balaam answered, you have made a fool of me. I think there's some irony here in making a fool of him by having him now talking to the donkey, which makes him look even more foolish. Um, You've made a fool of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, I'm your own donkey. You've always ridden me. Have I ever done this to you before? We got a track record here. I've been a good donkey. I've done what you wanted me to do. I always went where you told me to go. And now that I'm not, you don't think I have good reason for it. You don't trust me at all. My ability to walk. No, he answered. You've never done this before. Then the Lord let Balaam see the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord who was standing in the road with his sword drawn. So Balaam knelt, bowing with his face, touching the ground. This is like, you've seen those, um, the Muslim guys with the halal food carts where they roll out their um, little prayer rugs and they're doing their prayers. It's like that type of like face on the ground. The messenger of the Lord asked him, why have you hit your donkey three times like this? I've come here to stop you because the trip you're taking is evil. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away from me, I would have killed you by now, but spared the donkey. Balaam said to the messenger of the Lord, I've sinned. I don't know. I didn't know you were standing there in the road to stop me. If you still think this trip is evil, I'll go back. The messenger of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but say only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's princes. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at Ur Moab in the region of the Arnon Valley, right on the border of Moab. Balak said to Balaam, why didn't you come when I summoned you? You knew I'd be able to reward you. He wants to know why he's late. I thought you were supposed to be here by now. Balaam replied, well, I've come to you now. 
but I can't say whatever I want to say. I can only say what God tells me to say. Balaam went with Balak to Kiriath Huzoth. Balak sacrificed cattle, sheep, and goats, and sent and some sorry sent some of the meat to Balaam and the princes who were with him. The next morning, Balak took Balaam up to Bamoth Baal. From there, he could see the outskirts of the Israelites' camp. By the way, from high mountain tops, you can see the camps of these um, Israelite armies. The next morning. Oh, I just read that. Verse 23, sorry, chapter 23. Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars here. So Balaam wants Balak not only to do these curses, but he wants him to do some religious rituals and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did what Balaam told him and two of them uh, offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your burnt offering while I am gone. Maybe the Lord will come and meet with me. I will tell you whatever he reveals to me. Then Balaam went off to a higher place where there were no trees. God came to him and Balaam said, I have set up seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. The Lord told Balaam, go back to Balak and give him this message. So he went back to Balak and found him standing beside his burnt offering with all the princes of Moab. Then Balaam delivered this message. Balak brought me from Aram. The king of Moab summoned me from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, he said. Come, condemn Israel. How can I curse those whom God hasn't cursed? How can I condemn those whom the Lord hasn't condemned? I see them from the top of rocky cliffs. I look at them from the hills. I see a nation that lives by itself. People who do not consider themselves to be like other nations. The descendants of Jacob are like specks of dust. Who can count them or number even one-fourth of the people of Israel? Let me die the death of innocent people. Let, me end, let my end be like theirs. Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you here to curse my enemies, but all you've done is bless them. Balaam answered, I must say what the Lord tells me to say. Then Balak said to him, please come with me to another place where you can see the Israelites. You will see only some of them, not all of them. Curse them for me from there. So he took him to the field of Zophim on top of Mount Pisgah, where he built seven altars. He offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your altar offering while I meet with God over there. The Lord came to Balaam and told him, go back to Balak and give him a message. He came to Balak and found him standing beside his burnt offering with the prince of Moab. Balak again asked him, What did they say? What did the Lord say? Then Balaam delivered this message. Stand up, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not like people. He tells no lies. He is not like humans. He doesn't change his mind. When he says something, he does it. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I can't change it. He doesn't want any trouble for the descendants of Jacob. He sees no misfortune for the people of Israel. The Lord their God is with them, praised as their king. The God who brought them out of Egypt has the strength of a wild bull. No spell can curse the descendants of Jacob. No magic can harm the people of Israel. Now it will be said of Jacob and Israel, See what God has done. Here is a nation that attacks like a lioness and is ferocious as a lion. It doesn't lie down until it eats its prey and drinks the blood of its victim. Balak said to Balaam, If you won't curse them, then at least don't bless them. Balaam answered, Didn't I tell you that I must do whatever the Lord says? Balaam said to, Balak said to Balaam, Come, let me take you to another place. Maybe God wants you to curse them from me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Mount Peor, 
which overlooks Jeshimon. Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did what Balaam told him, and he offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Chapter 24. When Balaam saw the Lord wanted to bless Israel, he didn't look for omens as he had done before. He turned toward the desert, looked up, and saw Israel's camp grouped by tribes. Then the Spirit of God entered him, and he delivered this message. This is the message of Balaam, son of Beor. This is the message of the man whose eyesight is clear. This is the message of the one who hears God's words, has a vision from the Almighty, and falls into a trance with his eyes open. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, and the places where you live, Israel. Your tents spread out like rivers, like gardens by a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars by the water. Water will flow from their buckets, and their crops will have plenty of water. Their king will be greater than Agag, and their kingdom will be considered the best." The God who brought them out of Egypt has the strength of a wild bull. He will devour nations that are his enemies, crush their bones, and pierce them with arrows. His people lie down and rest like a lion. They are like a lioness. Who dares to disturb them? Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And there is a fourth prophecy. Balak became angry with Balaam. He clapped his hands and said, I summoned you to curse my enemies, and now you have blessed them three times. Get out of here. Go home. I said, I'd reward you richly, but the Lord has made you lose your reward. Balaam answered Balak, I told the messengers you sent me. Even if Balak would give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I couldn't disobey the Lord's command, no matter how good or bad the request might seem to be. I must only say what the Lord says, even though I'm going back to my people. I'll give you some advice. I'll tell you what these people will do to your people in the days to come. Then Balaam delivered this message. This is the message of Balaam, son of Beor. This is the message of the man whose eyesight is clear. This is the message of the one who hears God's words, receives knowledge from the Most High, has a vision from the Almighty, and falls into a trance with his eyes open. I see someone who is not here now. I look at someone who is not nearby. A star will come from Jacob. A scepter will rise from Israel. He will crush the heads of the Moabites and destroy all the people of Sheth. And Edom will be conquered. And Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. So Israel will become wealthy. He will rule from Jacob and destroy whoever is left in their cities. Then Balaam saw the Amalekites and delivered this message. Amalek was first among the nations, but in the end it will be destroyed. Then he saw the Kenites and delivered this message. You have a permanent place to live. Your nest is built in a rock, but it is destined to be burned. You, descendants of Cain, when Assyria takes you as prisoners of war. He delivered this message. Oh, no. Who will live when God decides to do this? Ships will come from the shores of Cyprus. They will conquer Assyria and Eber, but they too will be totally destroyed. Then Balaam got up and went back home, and Balak also went on his way. So, in this story, these three chapters that I just read, we see a story of Balaam, the prophet, who was hired to curse the people of God, but instead was instructed only to bless them. His cursing that he was supposed to give to the children of Israel ended up, I don't know if you caught it there at the end, but it ended up being turned against Moab. The guy who hired him to curse the Israelites is now the one falling under the curse of God. This motif, this theme of blessings and cursings is found throughout the Bible, and there's much that could be learned and discussed just on that. But here we've read this account. The primary vehicle for communicating 
the curses of the ungodly in Psalm 1 is through evil people. The primary vehicle for communicating the curses of the ungodly in Psalm 1 is through evil people. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. The blessed man does not walk with these people. The cursed man does walk with these people. What we see in verse 1 is a clear escalation in the way of the wicked. Number one, he walks in the counsel of the ungodly. His habit of life is not only associating with the wicked. That's what walking has to do with. It's your way of life. It's not just a casual conversation or a stroll down the sidewalk, though it certainly includes those things. But it's more than that. It's a way of life. His habit of life is not only associating with the wicked, but while he is hanging out with them, he is conversing with them. He's speaking with these people. He is putting himself under their influence, under their counsel. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. It is rare to have a conversation with someone that you know more than just an acquaintance who is not also just talking, but they're also expressing their opinion. Maybe in that first conversation, you can have a chat without it being an expression of opinion that is trying to be pushed on you. Maybe that first conversation would just be just the facts. Hi, my name is Andy, and I'm from this place, and I do that. And it, and it stays at that level. But anything beyond that is, is typically going to involve expression of opinion and placing of counsel. It's like, oh, well, here's what I think you should do. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. The cursed man does. The cursed man walks in the counsel of the ungodly. His habit of life is hanging out with them. He is conversing with the wicked. He is putting himself under their counsel. He is being taught by the wicked. He is being discipled in the ways of the world. Discipleship is not just a Christian concept. It's happening both in the church and outside the church. Your ungodly friends, your ungodly coworkers or relatives, the ones that are trying to get you to go a certain way, they're trying to get you to go a certain way. They have an agenda and they're trying to disciple you into that. On the far most nefarious edge of of the system, we we have terms like groomer to speak of this. But less um, overtly dark is just the ordinary discipleship of this world. Though I would contend that that discipleship of the world is just as dark as the grooming that's taking place in the public school system. Not only, secondly, not only is this cursed man standing or, or walking in the, under the, the counsel of the ungodly, but then he stands. He stands on the sidewalk. He talks with the ungodly. He listens to their counsel, but he stops to linger. He's not just walking along, but he is pausing. You know that a conversation is getting more pointed or more interesting or a little more spicy or more important or in in some way it's escalating when the walk down the street stops and you stop to talk, to say the point that you have to make. You tap them on the shoulder and say, but here's what happened. So that they're actually looking at you and focused. This is an escalation of the intensity of the conversation, regardless of the type of conversation, whether good or bad. When that walk turns into standing still, There's a lingering that is taking place here. 
And then thirdly, the third escalation is to sit with the scornful. So this cursed man, this one who is walking not under the blessings of God, but walking under the curses of God in the way of the sinner, is uh, they start by walking in this council, and then they stop to linger, to stand, and then they take a seat. They pull up a chair. Not only listening to the ungodly, but pausing in the path and then sitting in the seat of the scorner. Now, there is an escalation not only in the physical description of this from walking to standing to sitting, but there's also an escalation of the description of these figures. So it's walking with the ungodly. The ungodly is, is in a simple form, it's just one who lacks, lacks godliness. But then secondly, the sinner is one whose identity is that of sinner. Not simply lacking positive godliness, but possessing sin as an identity. That's the second level. The third level is sitting in the seat of the scorner. Now, there's a few things that are worth noting here in, in this point, sitting in the seat of the scorner. It's more than just pulling up a chair, though it includes pulling up a chair. It means you're sitting in his chair. It's the scorner's chair. It means that you eventually become the scorner. This downward progression, this spiral, this cursed spiral, this way, the cursed life is, is a way that leads to becoming the scorner. This path, this trajectory is a full embrace and practice of the way of the wicked, and it leads you to become the scorner. My friends, do not under underestimate the influence of other people. Do not underestimate the influence of other people. Even you who have very big, strong personalities, you are still influenced by other people. There are leaders and followers, and the followers are almost always 100% influenced by the, the big personalities around them. Like, they just kind of mold into what the, the leaders want them to do. But then there are those people with the strong personalities. Those ones are also influenced by the people that, that they are around. Do not underestimate the influence of other people on you. Do not underestimate the power of those that you hang out with to influence you. I'm not sure if I included this in my notes. No, I did. This is a good spot to talk about it, so we'll talk about this now. The number of people that I went to Bible college with who moved to New York City and then went off the rails spiritually is significant. It's more than one. There's a decent number that have come to New York City, some even to be pastors, and then they come here, and well, what do they do? Well, if they're uh, the, the good ones, well, then they're you know, the Christians. So they find a New York City church, and they 
settle in and they start adapting. And they're like, oh, this is a church where we drink as much as possible at every single social gathering. You're weird if you don't. Okay, well, I've never really drunk before because my parents were teetotalers and my church was teetotaling. And, and here we are uh, a bunch of drunkards. Like we, we get drunk at church events. Okay, I've never done that before, but you're doing that and it seems to be the cool thing to do. All right, well, it's kind of new to me, but I guess we'll go with the flow because I don't want to be made fun of. I'm, I'm, these are real, this, this really happens, okay? I've heard it from multiple people. And so they adopt this, the way of the world. But by the world, I mean the, the Christian world. And so they start sliding to the left. Oh, okay, this is a church where you don't have to be a Christian to lead a small group? Okay. Oh, you can be a small group host and be living with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Okay, um, all right. I, I used to think that was weird, but now I think, I guess uh, you think it's fine, so it must be fine. Um, oh, we, we can be practicing homosexuality and it's, okay, hey, we all stumble and fall, no big deal. Uh, oh, okay. And so there's this continuous leftward shift until then, next thing you know, they're literally going on podcasts and bragging about this stuff and saying, well, I'm in Christ, I don't have shame, I don't have, I don't have guilt over these things. We're supposed to, we're supposed to walk in, in uh, a shame-free life. This is the trajectory I mean, Christian leaders in New York City that come here and then get into these churches, whom probably a third of you are from, and next thing you know, a few years later, then they're theologically progressive, and then a few more years pass, and uh, then they're not a Christian anymore, and then they leave their spouse and start uh, identifying with the alphabet mafia, and and then people who knew them before are wondering, is this, is this guy about to transition? I mean, he, he used to be an evangelical leader, authoring books that are on my shelf. Then I'm buying books from his library, which he sold to the Strand, because he doesn't need them anymore, because he's not a Christian anymore. And now there's, there's former colleagues of his who are placing bets on when he's just going to come out as a she. This is the path. This is the spiral. And then producing podcasts mocking Christianity. Now, going back to where we were in the notes. The scorner. We need to talk about the scorner. I've kind of hinted at it, but haven't gone uh, as as direct with this. But the scorner is a a heightened level of wickedness. This is more than just, in, in our text here, it's more than just ungodly. And it's more than just a sinner who's identified with sin, but it is a person who mocks godliness. They're not just out doing their own thing, living, you know, live and let live. No, they're the one who attacks the Christians. I haven't done justice to what is being communicated here. The scorner is not just the -the run-of-the-mill evil person. The scorner is one whose evil is extremely elevated. The scorner is one of the most evil people described in the Bible. Scorn is an expression of contempt or derision. A scorner mocks the Lord. They scoff at Christianity and they mock sin and Christians. On the first Saturday of the month, um, 
the local Antifa chapter does a march uh, to as a counter protest against the Catholics who do a march on the first Saturday of the month to go down to the um, Margaret Sanger Planned Parenthood on Bleecker Street. And so you have a parade of Catholics and a parade of Antifa people. And there is no clearer picture than those Antifa protesters than, than that of, uh, of a scorner. They are the personification of the scorners. Their signs are mocking all things that are good. Their actions, their conduct is vile and vulgar. Their outfits or lack of outfits is also vile and vulgar. Their behavior, their physical mannerisms, the things that they do, their facial expressions, the words, everything about them is that of contempt towards Christ and his gospel and even human life itself. These are scorners. Now, what does the Bible say a scorner is? Well, Proverbs 24 uh, says the one who plans to do evil will be called a scheming person. A foolish scheme is sin, and a scorner is an abomination to people. Proverbs 3 says the Lord's curse is on the household of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. Although he is scornful to arrogant scoffers, yet he shows favor to the humble. Proverbs 1 says, how long will you gullible people love being gullible? How long will you mockers or scorners find joy in your mocking? How long will you fools hate knowledge? Proverbs 29 says, scornful people inflame a city. In other words, burn it. But those who are wise turn away wrath. If a wise person goes to court with a foolish person, there is no peace whether he is angry or laughs. Bloodthirsty people hate someone with integrity. As for the upright, they seek his life. Proverbs 21 says, The appetite of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor has shown no favor in his eyes. When a scorner is punished, the naive becomes wise. When a wise person is instructed, he gains knowledge. What we see in the Bible and in experience is that you cannot correct a scorner. A scorner does not learn when they are rebuked. Proverbs 13.1 says, A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer, a scorner, does not listen to rebuke. So the scorner, the, 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 the way of the wicked leads to becoming the scorner. What we see first in this chapter is the profound importance of other people in impacting the degree to which you are blessed or cursed. You'll walk with scorners and the curse of God will come upon you. The New Testament tells us bad company corrupts good morals. You walk, you stand, you sit with the wicked and you become like them. Eventually you're sitting in their seat and you're discipling others in the way of wickedness. So let me ask you, who influences you? Is it heathen, ungodly social media influencers? I haven't seen a whole lot of things more toxic than mommy influencers, mommy bloggers. Like the, the level of ungodliness and, and unbiblical advice that they're giving is like a one-to-one ratio. Like it's a Venn diagram and it's the same circle. Now, for the three of you who are not on social media, don't think that you're in the clear. You do something with your time. 
We all have time. So you can't just like, oh, I'm going to get off social media and then suddenly like, no, you still have time. So being disconnected from distant friends and family, sending each other cat memes uh, doesn't make you more righteous. Because instead of that, you're doing something. So if you are binge watching hours of Netflix and being discipled in the way of the world through that medium, you have no moral advantage over the one who sends their cousin reels from fancy restaurants every night instead. The question is, what's the way you're walking? Who is discipling you? Who is instructing you? Now, this is all very negative, very heavy, very law-oriented here in point one. Point one, the cursed life is the way of the wicked. Point two, the happy life is happy in the Lord. The happy life is happy in the Lord. Our text says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. The blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, before we really launch into verse two, we need to go back to verse one because it says, blessed is the man. Then that brings us into verse 2, which says his delight, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, there's something that, according to one commentator, is uh, there in our text in verse 1 that we might not necessarily see in English, but it's apparently there. And that is that the word the is there. Not every word in your Bible is there. Sometimes there's words in italics, which indicate that this is not actually in the original text, but it is filled in. It is included by a translator to help us understand and read it more naturally in accord with what we believe the original author intended the text to say. So, for example, in my New King James, it says blessed, and then in italics, is. So the word is wouldn't have been there in the original, but it's just an understood word that that is what he's trying to communicate, but he's not saying. So he would say, blessed the man. But what is there is the word the. Blessed is the man. Uh, One scholar said that the, the word really could be or should be that man. Blessed is that man with an emphasis on that word. That man. Not just any man, but the man. A scholar from previous century said that one in a thousand who lives for the accomplishment of the end for which God created him, that man, blessed is that man. Another scholar said this is a description of the character and the reward of the just one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed man. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way the ungodly. He does not stand in the path of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. As we are reading through the Psalms, as we are studying and preaching through the Psalms, there are a number of ways to get to Christ in in poetic literature, in the Psalms, one of which is that Jesus is wisdom personified. So when you see the wisdom literature and it's speaking of wisdom crying out in the streets, well, that's Jesus crying out in the streets. But another is this, the blessed man. That's Jesus. He is the blessed man. If you are going to be happy, you're going to be happy in the Lord. That's the only way it's going to happen. That's the only path to this life. That's the only path to this happy life. 
Because think about it. If you are not in Christ, you are not a Christian, you are not living your life in Christ with union with Christ as the justified sinner, the the saint who has uh, been counted righteous in Christ, if you don't have that, but you're just trying to be happy in your own way, that's, it's not going to work. Biblically, that will not work. So if you are going to be happy, the happy life is happy in the, in the Lord. Blessed means to be happy, and you aren't truly happy apart from Christ. To be blessed means to be happy in Christ. It means to be blessed by God. Jesus helps us understand what this means with his Beatitudes. I didn't insert them in the text, but I intended to. So let's turn over to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 says, Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or let's change it, happy. Happy are those who... Mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, the sons of God. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are you when they will revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How how are you going to be happy like that apart from Jesus? There's nothing about that list that the natural man finds happy. Poor in spirit? Really? The unsaved person is not happy by being poor in spirit. The natural man does not find any comfort in mourning, in sorrow. The natural man does not elevate meekness as a desirable virtue. The natural man instead elevates pride and ego as the desirable characteristic. The natural man does not hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're not just sitting there saying, oh, if only I could be more like Jesus. That's not what they say. Instead, they they plot wickedness. They make plans for their weekends to see how much sin they can do. How much can we afford? And still show up for work on Monday morning. The natural man longs for and lusts for revenge, not mercy. The natural man does not find happiness in purity of heart. The natural man is not consumed with desire to be a peacemaker, but rather lust for conflict, lust for war, lust for... for, uh... I mean, why do people go to see NASCAR games? 
It's not because they're looking for peace. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. You're there wanting to see a, a crash. You're there wanting to see, that's why the, the hockey games, you're like, fight, fight, fight. We want to see the violence. That's the good stuff, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. And then blessed, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Now, yeah, there are some weird people out there that are like, oh, I just can't wait to die as a martyr. The people who talk that way, that's not being spoken from pure godly motives. That's being spoken from sort of some sort of, well, some psychological issue rooted in some trauma that didn't deal with biblically. And instead, then they cultivated this problem to make it even greater. But then it's based on some sort of ego thing. Like, oh, you're going to attack me? Hang on a second while I get my video camera going, while I get my, my GoPro. Now you can beat me so I can get a viral video. Outside of that, we don't naturally desire to be persecuted. Blessed are, they, are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Why? We, we don't think that way. We want to be liked. We want people to be nice to us. We want to... Um, have people like us. So the one who is going to be happy and blessed according to this definition is only going to be happy in the Lord. You aren't truly happy apart from Christ. Yes, I'm saying the unbeliever is not truly happy. To be blessed means to be happy in Christ to be blessed by God. This kind of happiness is the stuff of heaven. This is the oxygen or the aroma of heaven. It is the culture that is saturated by agape love. To be blessed by God is to be truly happy, and to be truly happy is to be blessed by God. You don't get one without the other. Multiple times while I was preparing this message, I kept thinking about the lyrics to the song Trust and Obey. Now, I'm not sure that... um, Raise your hand if you know the song Trust and Obey. All right, so like a third of you. Well, here's how it goes. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his goodwill, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now, if you're kind of uh, cage stage law gospel, you might be saying, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Obey? Obey? Wait, uh, the song said to be happy in Jesus. So you trust in Jesus and that's how you get saved. But what do you have when you have a Christian who trusts in Jesus, but they're not obeying Jesus? Well, you have then an unhappy Christian. The song says to be happy in Jesus is to trust and obey. Song goes on. We can, but we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows, for the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. Again, you're not having joy. You're not filled with joy when your life is in rebellion against God. Not a shadow can rise nor a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives them away. Not a doubt nor a fear, not a sigh nor a tear can arise while we trust and obey. Now, yes, I admit that's a bit Keswick right there. So if you're thinking about the theological paradigm of the author of the song, 
The next verse goes on. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do. Where he sends, we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Uh, Point three, the happy life bears good fruit. The happy life bears good fruit. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The happy life bears good fruit. I had a whole conversation yesterday about um, the physical versus spiritual and the blessings and whether things are um, physical blessings or spiritual blessings. When you read and reread and read over and over again through the Bible, but uh, particularly um, poetic literature in the Old Testament, you don't necessarily see such a division between the physical and the spiritual. Often they go together. Not always. But generally speaking, the path of the wicked leads to destruction. The path of the righteous leads to prosperity. This is a general truth. But what is more than generally true is that this blessed man shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Now, in Spurgeon's um, Treasury of David, which is his commentary on the Psalms, I believe it's the only um, commentary proper that he ever wrote. Most of his writing is uh, sermon transcripts. But in Treasury of David, this is an actual commentary on the Psalms. Um, He says, um, or one of the people that he quotes says, that this tree planted by the rivers of water is not um, naturally there. It was planted there. So this blessed man is not just occurring on its own, but this blessed man is planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Now there's a temptation for the, the, especially the new Christian or the young Christian You've been a Christian for like a year or two, and you're like, oh, I want to I serve the Lord. I want to get busy. I want to do the things. Well, that's great. I'm glad. But the Christian life has different seasons, and different types of fruit grow in different seasons in the Christian life. Some things you need to grow first before you can do. It's sort of like physical life. My 15, 16-month-old baby, he wants to do certain things, and he just can't do them yet because he's too small. But as he grows, he will be able to do more things. Now he's tall enough, he can open a doorknob. That's a little nerve-wracking. It's not, it makes you nervous. Like he lets himself out. You're like, oh, there he goes. The Christian life has different seasons in it. Sometimes there are seasons of waiting. Seasons where your fruit, the good fruit that you are going to bear is patience in tribulation, patience in a time of waiting. Now, not all waiting is tribulation, okay? Acknowledge that, but there is some which is. 
There are times in the Christian life where it is not time to do. It is time to be and to become. And when I was a sophomore in college, I would have been 20, 20 21. Uh, going into junior year, I was on this mission trip in Europe. We spent 10 weeks. We went to lots of countries and did lots of things. And um, I was... I was still in like the hardcore cage stage, like binge listening to Paul Washer, like four sermons a day of his. Like, like you, you would never talk to Andy. You were talking to Paul Washer Jr. Woodard. <laughs> and like it irritated everybody around me because it was just like so, you know, <clears throat> as far as that, if you know what I'm saying. Um, and I just really wanted to preach. And I'm listening, I'm on this mission trip, we did 70-some concerts, like 71 concerts in 70 days, and so it's a traveling choir, and there's like a couple preachers, and the locals in all these countries are putting on these events and advertising, uh, American choir doing a concert, and people will come out just to see, like there's not a whole lot going on in these villages, so they're just coming out to see what these American uh, sideshow has for us. And so we're singing these songs in all kinds of different languages, which we're phonetically pronouncing, um, I mean, we're talking like German, French, Slovak, Czech. Uh, are those two different languages? I'm not sure. But we're, we're sang, singing these songs, and um, then we'd sit down and we'd listen to one of the preachers on our team preach a sermon. There were two preachers, and one was my missions professor, who I took a ton of classes with, my, one of my favorite professors, Dr. Oberlin. And then the other was a guy who just won the preaching contest. And yes, at my school, they had a thing called a preaching contest. They didn't have a praying contest, and I'm still not sure why. But the, the preaching contest, this, this young man had won that, and so he was the secondary preacher. And these two guys would take turns preaching. So we heard the same two sermons every day or every other day all summer long. And I'm just sitting there thinking, that's not how Paul Washer would have said it. Let me preach. I want to preach. But I had just finished sophomore year, and at this college, they have a thing called Preacher Boys, and Preacher Boys was the term given to the Bible student, the, the guys who were studying for ministry, and so you're a preacher boy. But you haven't, you're not a junior yet, so you don't take homiletics, preaching class, until junior year. So they don't really let you preach until junior year. You have to take all these remedial courses. You have to do Old Testament, New Testament, just a bunch of basic stuff before they let you in the pulpit to spat off heresy. That's the idea. And so I was very frustrated as I'm sitting there, sermon after sermon after sermon. It's the same two sermons over and over and over and over and over again, thinking, I want to preach. Come on. I can do it better than that guy. So I thought... But then I realized, as I'm, because I'm still having to write sermons, I have to send them in because it's a summer practicum thing. So you just you're preparing all these sermons, and then you're doing evangelism and reporting your evangelism and like logging all the stuff that you're doing. But what I realized that summer was that this was a time not for me to do, but to be. This was not a time for me to be preaching, but it was a time to be studying to be cultivating, to be learning, to be growing. And this is true for every new believer. It's a time to dig those wells, to cultivate some spiritual depth. If you're going to go far, if you're going to do much, you're going to need a good foundation. Uh, In homiletics class in doctoral studies a few years ago, um, they gave each of us uh, a little piece of paper and then um, said, don't open it. 
So it's like that game with the names and the numbers that we played at my house the other day. So it's like that, except instead of having a number on it, it has a word. You can't open it until we tell you. And then, um, so you take turns. So the, let's say there's 10 people in the class. Uh, so Andy, come up front. So you come up to the front. You're there behind the podium. They say, okay, now look at your word. And then give us an illustration based on that word now. And so my word that I was given was skyscraper. So I have to preach a little spiritual point about a skyscraper with no preparation. And um, so I start off with a story. I said, I live in New York City. In New York City, there are lots of skyscrapers. When you're walking along, you see these, these uh, wooden construction things to block the vision. But next to those, or in those, you have a little window. And I like to stop and to look into those windows. And what I see when I look down in the early stages of the construction of a skyscraper is a big hole. And in that big hole, what are they doing? Well, they're building the foundation. If this skyscraper is going to be tall, the taller it's going to be, the deeper the foundation has to go. So if you are going to serve the Lord, if he's going to use you in a mighty way, you have to have a deep foundation. And somehow I wrap this up into um, reading the Bible or something. The happy life bears good fruit. If your life is not bearing the type of fruit that you want right now, that might be a problem. It also might just be your own impatience. If right now the fruit that you are picking off the tree is a fruit that tastes a lot like waiting, then rejoice in that. Uh, The Lord says that they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Waiting upon the Lord is actually a good thing, even though it might not feel good. Uh, This happy life also is one that the leaf will not wither, and in whatever he does shall prosper. It should, it should not be a, a strange thing to find good things happening. That should be the logical, natural outcome of the godly life. Like, we're happy for you when we, get, when you, we hear that you get a promotion, but we expect that of you. You're a Christian. You're living a life of honoring God. That makes you the best type of employee that an employer would want to have. Why? Because you tell the truth. Because Christians don't lie. The father of lies is the one who inspires lying. So you are a person of integrity because you are born of God. You've been born again, begotten of God. And so you are a truth teller because Jesus is the truth. So you walk in the light of that. So therefore, you're a truth telling employee and employers like that. Secondly, you show up on time because you gave your word to show up. And so part of being a truth teller is keeping that word, which means you're dependable. Employers like that. You're also diligent. You do what you're supposed to do. You're communicative. You respond. You don't just ghost people for days on end. You are, you are a, a decent human being. And so your employer says, I can trust this one. I'm going to give him or her more responsibilities. And then with that increased responsibility comes increased pay. That's normal. We rejoice with you when that happens. But if that has never happened to you, you need to ask people in your life who are close enough with you to be able to tell you the truth. Hey, am I a responsible adult? And if they're like, "Mm," then the answer is no. If you are a responsible person, you will get promoted eventually. And so 
there will be increased prosperity associated with that. The happy life bears good fruit. The Christian life bears good fruit. I think Jesus said something about that also in his Sermon on the Mount. And last, point four. The happy life leads to eternal life. The cursed life leads to eternal death. The happy life leads to eternal life, and the cursed life leads to eternal death. Verse four says, the ungodly are not so. Not so what? Well, not so prosperous. But like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Blessings follow obedience and cursings. Curses follow disobedience. The law says, do this and live. Break this law and you shall surely die. The wicked, they have broken the law. Therefore, they will surely die. This path leads to destruction. This leads to perishing, as verse 6 says. The way of the ungodly shall perish. Hopefully that word perish sounds familiar to you who have seen John 3.16 in your Bible before. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish. You're like, what does perish mean? Well, he defines it for us with the next word. He says, but have everlasting life. So that word but there contrasts that. So it says perishing is the opposite of eternal life. So to perish means eternal death. So the way of the ungodly leads to eternal death. The first half of verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This word know is the same as this intimate knowledge. Adam knew Eve, or the Lord foreknows you. It means love. The Lord loves the way of the righteous. Obviously, God is aware of the way of the ungodly. So this word know doesn't just mean he is aware of the way of the righteous, but unaware of the wicked. No, this is that the Lord loves the way of the righteous and... He hates the way of the ungodly. The way of the ungodly shall perish. The happy life leads to eternal life. The cursed life leads to eternal death. Um, There's more on that in verse 4 and 5. The ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. There is a judgment day. God will call you to account for your deeds And you're either in Christ or you're not. If you are in Christ, you stand in the judgment. If you are not in Christ, it's bad. There's no standing there. It is wind driving it away. Not only that, the sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. This congregation of the righteous. Certainly there's some level of uh, local church situation to it. But this congregation of the righteous is ultimately speaking of heaven. The assembly of the firstborn, the church of the firstborn, the church of Jesus Christ in heaven. That's where sinners will not stand at all. So, are you here today and you're not a Christian? That's, you, you don't want to face that. Trust me, you don't. We are talking the other day about uh, funerals for um, unbelievers. A funeral for an unbeliever is not a good thing. What do you say? How do you make that better? Well, you don't. You can't lie. You can't say, oh, well, 
You know, he's in heaven right now when you know he, 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 he didn't know Jesus. Now, to the soft one, well, how, you can't really know. Okay, well, you can't really, really know, but you can really know. What you really know is there was no profession of faith in this person's life at any point. And sure, in their vegetative state, perhaps something happened that we have no knowledge of, but we have no reason to think that that happened. So here's what we do know. What we know is that, you know, Uncle, Uncle, Uncle Joe, what he would say to you right now is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's if he could speak to you from the grave, he would tell you, turn to Christ, trust in him. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Please believe on him before it's too late. That's what would be said from the other side of the judgment. Now, I have a smattering of eclectic thoughts that I did not have the chance to organize. Let me have a moment to think on what we need to include or not. Um, something about meditation. Meditation. Uh, meditation is not Eastern meditation. Biblical meditation is not emptying the mind, but it is filling the mind. And it's filling the mind with Scripture, thoughts of God, truth. Meditation is like worrying. It is taking a thing and considering it from every possible angle. So let's say that you have a doctor's appointment tomorrow, and it's to find out whether or not you uh, are tested positive for certain horrible disease, and you don't want that. So what are you doing? Well, you're thinking about that probably right now. You're worrying about it. You're thinking about it from every possible angle. You're thinking about the implications of it. You're also thinking about the opposite of it. What is it? What is it not? What does it mean? What are the consequences of this? What are the degrees of this? Is it stage one, stage two, stage three? I don't know, but I'll find out. If it is stage one, then here's the outcome. If it's stage two, then here's the outcome. If it's stage three, then here's the outcome. So you're considering this thing from every possible angle, thinking about it's the nature of it, it's uh, definition, it's implications. Well, that's what it means to meditate. So meditation is to fill your mind with a certain thing. Let's say Psalm 1. So you're going to meditate on Psalm 1 by considering what it says. Well, it says, blessed is the man. So you say, well, am I blessed? I don't know. I don't really feel blessed. I want to be blessed. Is this the way that I become blessed or is this the way that I am blessed? And so, well, what we observe in Psalm 1 is that this is the way the blessed man is, not the way he should be. Therefore, what this means is if this applies to me, then this applies to me whether I feel like it or not. And so you're meditating. I'm just talking you through a meditation exercise right here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So then you start to evaluate yourself and you say, well, am I walking with the ungodly? Well, maybe I am a little too much. Maybe I, my life is being influenced by ungodly people. And, and so though I am blessed in Christ and I am happy in Jesus, the amount of influence that I have from the ungodly, from the people who do not walk that way, is too much. And so that's the reason why my experience is not that of the blessed man, but is more like the unblessed man, because I'm around all these cursed people who are pressing their ungodliness on me, and they're not happy until I become not happy. This is a little bit of what it means to meditate or what it looks like practically to meditate. Now, what's helpful to meditate is to memorize. Memorization and meditation are not the same thing, but if you memorize scripture, it helps you to meditate on scripture. 
So when I was a child, my mother would have us do uh, scripture memorization every morning at breakfast. While we were eating our Cheerios, we were memorizing scripture. We could not leave the table until we had recited our verse without looking at it, without reading it. We just had to like, and so the result is I can quote to you Psalm 1 and a variety of other passages. If, if you're like, whoa, Andy, can, Andy knows a lot of scripture. If, if you've ever had that thought, if you ever meet my mother, you need to tell her that. You should say, thank you for making Andy memorize scripture when he was a little boy, because we appreciate that. My, mo- my mother would be greatly blessed to have a word of encouragement like that. Now, I have several of you, probably five or six people, memorizing chunks of scripture right now. So don't worry, I'm not going to make you stand up and recite your scripture, but I really want to. And perhaps at some point, we will have the opportunity for those who have memorized Ephesians chapter 1 to stand together here in this room, maybe down front, and quote Ephesians 1 together. That would be great. I know of churches that do that. In their small groups, they memorize scripture as a group, and then once they've got it, then they Quote it to the congregation, and it's very encouraging. It's, it's, you, you feel blessed having watched your brothers and sisters quote a large chunk of, scri- of Scripture, and it inspires you to want to do the same. So, memorization is an aid to meditation. But none of that's it's also not the same exact thing as study. So, studying the Word is digging in a little deeper, taking it at a deeper level than just the surface-level obvious stuff, but considering background material, or the date, or the authorship, or... Uh, cross-references, and other things that are speaking into this. And so I would ask you, do you think that God is going to read the Bible for you? Do you think that God is going to walk over and pick up the Bible and put it in your hands and open it for you and read it to you? Well, we have apps that can play it for us, and that's kind of like having someone read it to you. But ultimately, if you're going to meditate on Scripture, you're going to read the Word, you're going to have to actually pick up, take your hand Take your Bible and open it and read it. And that's not going to happen on its own. And me telling you that, that is not me preaching works. I'm just saying, if you're going to read the Bible, you're going to have to pick it up and open it. If you're not meditating on Scripture, what are you meditating on instead? What are you filling your mind with instead? Your problems? Well, probably. We all have them. We all have problems, and we think about them a lot. One of my goals for the new year, I, don't, I, I intended to say this last week. I don't know if I did or not, so if I did, I'm very sorry, and I apologize. I'm not trying to brag, but this is just something that for myself that I am doing and have done for about the last four or five weeks, and I intend to do in the new year, and that is to have my time reading Scripture on my phone exceed my time on my phone on other apps. So at the end of the week, I want to look and see the screen time and say, oh, The most used app is the Bible. That's my goal. Now, there have been a couple weeks where I'm not sure what happened as far as communication because, like, there was more um, text sent than Bible read. But some of those, they're they're close. It's like 10 hours and four minutes in um, on iMessage and 10 hours and one minute in the Bible. And I take that as a win. That's a positive. That's better than it was this time last year. My goal is to spend a minimum of 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at night in the Word. Now, my goal goal is to read the entire Bible once a month this year. So I want to read the whole Bible 12 times this year. That will take, uh, there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. 
And so that means you have to read approximately 33 chapters a day, which is going to take over an hour. So 30 plus minutes in the morning and 30 plus minutes at night, and you'll make it. You might need about 45 and 45, but that's, um, that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm telling you this all in the spirit of New Year's Eve, th- New Year's things. Some would call them resolutions. Uh, but also in light of this idea of meditating on Scripture, filling your mind with Scripture. If you have no plan to read the Bible, I would encourage you to get one. If you don't know which app to use, there's a great one that um, I've told a few people about. It's if you go on the app store and type in PRSI, it's this black thing with like a, I don't know, it's sort of like a flower. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a, I guess it's four books that are open pointing towards each other, which makes a cross in the middle and sort of looks like a flower. But it's PRSI and then a hyphen Bible. And it has, um, it has a New King James audio Bible and it has a Bible tracker so you can check it off after you've read it and you can make your own reading plan and that your own custom reading plan then is an audio Bible reading plan. So being practical here, what this means is as I'm preaching through the Psalms, what I'm doing is reading whatever Psalm, whatever my sermon text is, I want to read it 50 times that week. So Psalm 1, 50 times this week, I make a playlist of Psalm 1 10 times, and then I hit play, or here we have Psalm 2. We'll go ahead and play it for you. So this is Psalm 2. And so you just set it there playing and put it in front of you and stare at it. And you're listening and you're reading. And this goes through it 10 times. And then once you finish that 10 times, then that was 10. And you want to do it now 20? It's okay. You can go to the top of the playlist and you hit play again. It might take about 10 minutes to go through it once. So that's another thing that I'm doing to meditate on scripture, to fill my mind with scripture so that my sermon prep isn't all dedicated on like Friday and Saturday. Oh no, my wife is sick. The kid is sick. Everything is thrown off. We're going to have to preach a Sunday morning special. We don't want to do that. So we want to be meditating on scripture throughout the week. Um, Let's see. What else? Um, Worldliness is not just the open embrace of all that contradicts God's will and God's ways. Worldliness is also a way of thinking or thinking that things that will make you happy are the things that the world says will make you happy. But actually, God defines what happiness is. The world might say, you will be happy if you have this thing or that, if you have more money or a nicer apartment or those shoes or this phone or that fashion. But those things don't bring you happiness. Having them or not having them is not what brings happiness what brings happiness? Well, there's these two, these two things that the Lord uses as um, portals of blessing, and that is the Word of God and people. These are the ways that God distributes blessing and curses. And you're going to have a hard time of avoiding either blessing or curses if you are fill, filling your mind with words of blessing, you're going to get blessed, and people who are blessing, you'll get blessed. Or if you fill your mind with words of cursing and people of cursing, you will have that path as well. So, if these words, uh, the characteristics of the blessed man describe you, then you are blessed, even if you have very little of the things that the world would look at and praise. So, my question, do you want to be happy? Be happy in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word, which you have given to us. I pray that you would shape and fashion us more and more into the likeness of your Son, and that you would do this through your word as a 
applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I pray that this year would be a year of dramatic, dramatically increased happiness and blessedness for your people whom you have said are blessed. We have received the blessings of God. Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places has been given to us. Lord, we pray that we would take hold of these things, that we would avail ourselves of these things and to live as though they are true and not to be a walking contradiction. Lord, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.